You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for our second edition of The Guide Post, brought to you by Costa Sunglasses. Um, today, we have, uh, we have a pretty special show for you all. Um, we're super happy to have Captain John McMurray on here, our president. Uh, last episode, he was recovering from a torn bicep, fixing God knows what on one of his boats. And, um, and you know, we'll have his perspective today on the Stripe Ass Amendment 7 issues, as well as a special guest a little bit later on. Um, so, uh, without, without further ado, uh, let's get John on the horn, um, get his perspective from on the water as well as, uh, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission commissioner from New York legislative proxy. So welcome to your first edition, our second edition of the podcast, John. Thanks, man. Uh, so I guess I got to give a little intro myself, um, Oh, everybody, everybody wants to know who you are, brother. Tell them. Uh, I've been in the trotter business for 20 years now. A half dozen of that has been full time. And while I'm certainly more diversified now, I kind of built the business on striped bass. And I did that during a time where they were certainly more abundant, more available than they are now. Uh, so uh, I did three terms, nine years on the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council. Um, that's one of the seven federal regional management bodies. Uh, the councils manage outside of three nautical miles under the Magnuson Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act. And they manage things like bluefish, summer flounder, black sea bass, scup, as well as forage like squid, mackerel, butterfish. And for the last four years, I served as New York's legislative proxy in the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, better known as ASMFC. Um, and that is a state cooperative, doesn't operate under the same mandate or requirements to prevent overfishing or build overfish stocks like the councils. And of course, they manage everything inside of three miles like striped bass, weak fish, red drum, et cetera. So that's who I am and what I do. Well, thanks. Thanks for that, John. Um, like I said before, we were sorry that uh, that we missed you on the first go around, but you kind of you kind of been through the ringer. Uh, hope your arm's doing better, by the way. Um, and we also, folks, have Willie uh, Goldsmith, our executive director. Uh, Willie, you want to say hi to everyone real quick? Thanks, Tony. Uh, hey, everybody. Glad to be here. Glad to have John on the horn uh, this morning to, to talk about striped bass and Amendment 7. And John, I was wondering if you could just speak a bit. You know, I know you've been a big champion of, of the value of fish in the water. And talking about you know why abundance is important for your business, so I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So, so my business, as well as I think a lot of businesses, most most fishing businesses, most recreational fishing businesses, are driven by opportunity, uh, by fish in the water. And anglers have to have a reasonable expectation of encountering fish if they're going to book a trip. And I don't believe it's necessarily how many fish folks can kill but how many we can encounter. And I know that's the case uh, in the fisheries I prosecute. Um, the better the fishing is, the more trips I'll book. And I think 
Uh, tuna is a good example of that, bluefin tuna. Um, they seem to be relatively abundant, certainly more abundant than they were uh, even just a few years ago. Uh, we have them closer to shore and more and more appear every year in different age and size classes. And I book a ton of trips on bluefin right now because of that abundance. Uh, abundance drives opportunity. Now, when you talk about striped bass, which have clearly been in decline for a while, uh, up until a couple of years ago anyway, um, I've booked less and less striped bass trips. And that's because uh, people understand that there's not as much of an opportunity as there used to be to encounter them. Uh, so healthy and abundant stocks equals opportunity. And that translates into participation, and that's the the major economic driver for the for the guide businesses. Uh, abundance drives opportunity. It, it's what creates bookings. Uh, people want to go fishing if they hear the fishing is good, and uh, that is why uh, abundance and, and healthy stocks are very important to the guide business. Yeah, John, I would agree. Um, you know, when you look at uh, when you look at the MRIP data. And the trips that we take, you know, it peaked right in 2006 when the population peaked for striped bass, and it's been on a downward slide now. So everything you say, everything you just said is 100% backed up by the data that we have. Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't think that that this effort that we've launched with the Guides Association is, is saying anything new. Uh, the, the MRIP data bears, bears it out. Uh, it's you could go back and look at it and look at stock size and availability and measure that against effort and participation. Um, but I think what's, what's new, what we're doing is we're, we're able to tie that economic component to it. We're able to say, well, listen, you know, it's, it's important that we, we maintain healthy and sustainable stocks in the water uh, because that's an econ economic driver for us. And, and we're not, we're not a bunch of guys playing with our fish. We are, uh, real stakeholders that have an economic stake in this fishery and we benefit from good management. Uh, and it's not, there's not a negative economic consequence with every conservation measure, which was the narrative up until very recently when we, when we kind of organized and started pushing that narrative. Yeah. Willie, Willie made a great point. We were on the, uh, the main hearing last night. Um, you know, as, as most of the listeners know, all the state hearings are going on right now. And Willie and I popped on the main hearing because we don't have anything better to do. Um, and, uh, no, we don't, we're, we're giant losers and, and we're, we're comfort, we're comfortable in our own skin. And Willie, uh, in the comments made a great point about some social science, which he is an absolute expert in. And Willie, can you share that? Um, you know, that, that, that. ASMFC is not integrating some really good science on striped bass into the management regime. And I think it, it goes hand in hand with what John was just saying. Yeah. So I think when you think about recreational fisheries, right They're you know, they're, they're different from commercial fisheries, not in the fact that they're, you know, the, both of them obviously are, you know, are killing fish either through harvest or, or post-release mortality, but the, the motivation for people getting on the water is different, right? So if you're a commercial fisherman, you're largely out there to make a living, to make a profit. If you're a recreational fisherman, you know, you might be out there to take a fish home. You might be out there to catch as many fish as possible to catch a big fish, uh, just to be out on the water and spend time with friends and family. And you know, there's all sorts of different reasons to be out there. 
And I think there's been a lot of great work, um, some on stripers, but also a lot on a bunch of other species around kind of these different motivations for, for fishing, right? And what, uh, where I think this work can really come in for striped bass is in thinking about how, you know, as fish availability changes up and down the coast, as the size structure of fish changes, as regulations change, how does that affect fishing effort? And then how is that going to impact, you know, our fishing mortality? And we, you know, we know that that isn't necessarily going to be linear, right? So if you, you know, a, uh, a liberalization of the size limit is not necessarily going to have a, you know, a proportional change in, in fishing effort. You might see these kind of, you know, nonlinear impacts and you might see these big, these big fundamental shifts in the fishery, these tipping points that you might not be able to anticipate without that science. So, you know, we're really interested in seeing more of that work done in the striped bass fishery, uh, better trying to understand where people are getting value out of the fishery, which I think can really help, you know, quantify and add a little bit more more teeth to some of these discussions around, you know, what we want to see out of the fishery and really bear that information out. So, uh, you know, there's been some of this work done, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for more of it to be done. And I think certainly from an ASMFC perspective, I think it would be great to see more of that work kind of explicitly considered in the decision-making process. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in the public information document for amendment seven about how we really, you know, it's hard to know how effective management is because, we don't understand how how fishing effort and and harvest behavior changes and and what might be impacting that outside of regulations and i think some of the social science work can really help inform that discussion so we'd love to see that more explicitly incorporated into management we'd love to see funding and and more support for that kind of research and uh you know we we hope to see that continue to go it's you know it's personal for me certainly as tony knows a lot of my grad school work was was on this looking at in the bluefin tuna fishery trying to understand relative value of harvest versus catch and release and just given the you know the the hugely dominant uh fact that the, you know the, the dominant role of of the recreational fishery for striped bass i think it's really important to understand that element so uh, hopefully we'll see that continue to be incorporated and man who invited the smart kid i know i was just i was gonna say john maybe me you and i should talk for like five minutes so sorry guys that's <laughs> I, I think tony refers to that as my like, my, my prattling so uh apologies I feel for the like prattling. I'm back in college and i was a professor so let's uh let's step back a little bit and john I, i'll i'll well, hold, hold on a second yeah. really just just a quick comment on on what you said because i i think it's very relevant and and the way you're able to articulate that uh, I think is compelling and hopefully it'll be compelling to commission staff as well as managers. Um, but, but what I would like to say is that this, this narrative that liberalization of regulations or, or how many you could harvest drives participation, it's, it's just not true in the striped bass fishery. Uh, it, it may be true. It may be true to the minority, the, you know, the loud minority that, that, goes to these meetings and, and gets upset and says you're taking away their livelihood. But uh, if, if it were true, and I've said this a number of times in, in blogs, if if people really valued killing fish more than encountering them, they would just go to the freaking fish market because it's way cheaper. Uh, but but that seems to fall on deaf ears sometimes. And, I, and frankly, I don't really understand why. And so, yeah, I think you're right, John. You know, a lot of this research can get at those questions, right? And look at these trade-offs. Like, you know, for example, would you rather go on a trip when you catch 20 fish and you're not able to keep any of them or you're allowed to keep one of them? 
Richard Gout rather go on a trip where you only catch three fish and you're allowed to keep all three of them, right? Those are the kinds of trade-offs. I think certainly, you know, our, our perspective is that folks prefer the former, right? They prefer in the striped bass fishery to have that opportunity. Obviously, people are different. Fisheries are different, but we're here, we're dealing with striped bass, we're dealing with, with Amendment 7. And I think having that research incorporated here to really, you know, inform the discussion uh, would be a huge asset. And I, I really hope to see that. So guys, what what Willie is saying is when, I think what this comes down to is when you hear that, oh, you know, these catch and release guys just like to play with the fish and they they throw them back and it's, a, it's 9% or dead and it's wasted. It really isn't. Because there's an economy surrounding that. And you're talking about like 92% of the striped bass are released. And it's not because they're too small or too big. It's because the general angler behavior uh, in regard to striped bass fishing is people are prefer to let them go. So, you know, we hate uh, he, you hate to see a dead fish, but a dead fish is a dead fish. And there is a massive economy surrounding catch and release fishing i mean how many rods how many lures how many trips to the gas station how many sandwiches do you buy and if you choose not to catch a fish not to keep a fish rather um i don't think anyone chooses not to catch a fish but if you choose not to keep a fish it's still generated economy it's not worthless that 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 fish died due to post-release mortality um guys we i want to get kind of real quick into the hearings i know we have a guest calling in in a couple of minutes um but you know the first the first podcast was kind of doom and gloom we willie and i went over what amendment seven looked like and and all the potential obstacles that we have in front of us for striped bass recovery and i gotta tell you um we listened to the new hampshire and the main meeting in the last two nights and it gave me hope it gave me a lot of hope. Um, these are to frame it. These are two good states. These are these are conservation focused states in regard to striped bass. But almost every comment that I listened to in both of those hearings was framed with "recover this fishery." It's not what it was. Do whatever you have to do. Get these fish back to abundance as fast as possible. And. Um, and Willie, you know, I know you were on there too. I gave comments in New Hampshire. You gave comments in Maine. What did you think when you were on the call last night? And John, as a commissioner, I got to tell you, you know, you and I have listened to so many commission meetings that, you know, it's almost, it's almost like, you know, what's going to happen before it happens. You get, you get kind of that, that sixth sense of like, oh God, it's going off the tracks. And um, it wasn't that way the last two nights. And it, and it actually made me feel like somehow all the work that the association is doing is resonating with the public because a lot of the comments, man, they, they had our, they had our document just interlaced throughout what, what their, what their thoughts were the, the, the attendees. So I know we got a, we got a special guest coming on, um, who actually attended the meeting and also gave comment. So Willie, what, what was your read on it? Um, you know, this was, I think this was probably the first commission meeting that you gave comment on. So I'd like to hear your perspective. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Tony. And it was definitely encouraging, right? I mean, we heard every comment that we heard was in support of maintaining current reference points, you know, uh, increasing accountability for conservation equivalency, 
rebuilding the stock, basically all of the things that we really think are important to, uh, to a healthy striped bass fishery. So it was great to hear all of those comments. It was great to see, you know, our talking points having an impact. And just a reminder to folks listening. Uh, so the first two hearings have been completed for the public information document. They're going to be, I think, nine more hearings over the next three weeks uh, up and down the coast, trying to get uh, stakeholder input on the public information document. So really hoping to see a strong, strong turnout from folks to let their, let their voice be heard to the ASMFC and members of the Striped Bass Management Board. And a reminder as well that the written comment deadline is due on April 9th. So if you are planning to submit written comments to the ASMFC, uh, those are due on April 9th. And a reminder that we are hosting a raffle with the Saltwater Edge. So if you want to be part of that, when you submit your comments to the ASMFC, uh, please cc stripercomments at gmail.com and we'll enter you into that raffle. Before we kick it over to our special guest, uh, John, I just wanted to ask you briefly about, you know, the ASMFC in general. And obviously you've been a commissioner, you've been involved there and kind of, you know, what do you foresee as kind of some of the major challenges and opportunities here as we move through this process, right? I know you've seen a lot over the last 10 years, um, you know, on the, on the commission and, you know, a, a lot of obstacles to, to really maintaining a healthy striped bass stock. And just kind of wanted to get your, your general thoughts on, you know, uh, what the opportunities are here moving forward. Uh, sure. So a quick insight into, uh, into your comments about the, uh, about the public hearing, um, you know, obviously those are states who are generally good on striped bass conservation. And it's, it's no coincidence that those public comments supported striped bass conservation. To, to me, that proves uh, that public comment does really kind of drive state policy. It, it always has in those states. They, they've heard from their constituents and they, they try to do right at the table uh, by those constituents. Um, now that becomes more critical once you start going south and you have some states that are either swing states or, or not so good on striped bass conservation. And uh, it's very important that those hearings have good turnouts and that good articulate comments based on uh, our bullet points are, are really are going to have some effect here, I believe. Um, I know a lot of people feel like sometimes the commissioners don't listen to them. They don't listen to public comments. Um, but I can tell you firsthand, as somebody that sits at the table and regularly talks to those commissioners, they do hear, they hear it loud and clear, and they do consider it. Um, sometimes they don't make decisions that we would like, but those comments are always taken into consideration. Um, now, to the overall broad uh, general reflection that you're asking me to do, I, I you know, it's it's often frustrating sitting around the table and, and seeing the process by which decisions are are made, uh, and you know it's it, it'll make you bang your head against the wall sometimes. But it's not uh, a reason to to kind of like lay back and say, well, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do because it's that's not the way it works. There are very deliberative discussions. And some things are said that, that aren't entirely true by some commissioners. And then there are compelling arguments on the other side, too. And uh, I, I really think, uh, just going back to my original comment, that you know these public hearings really do matter. And it really is important to, to have uh, to not, not just a lot of people making public comments, but, but good public comments that are based on, on the science uh, and, and also based on personal experience. 
And that's pretty much all I have to say there. Right on. Well, John, thanks so much for for the insight and wisdom as always. Uh, you know, really appreciate your thoughts here, and you know, look forward to seeing how how the rest of the hearings go here as uh, as we keep going through March and uh, the next couple of weeks. Uh, I now just want to shift to introducing our special guest who we have on the show today. Uh, we have Captain Kyle Schaefer of Soulfly Outfitters. Kyle is our main board member for ASGA, and we're thrilled to have him. So, Kyle, welcome, welcome to the podcast, and maybe you can give us a just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Willie. Um, psyched to be here chatting with you guys today. Um, so, yeah, like Willie mentioned, um, my business is called Soulfly Outfitters. I run a uh, fly fishing uh, business up in the southern coast of Maine. Um, Straight bass is our main event up there. I love to focus on the flats and the shallow water, uh, really shallow water and kind of any element. Uh, we've got a lot of really cool uh, fishing along our, our rocky coast as well. So I'm, I'm lucky to be up, up here in Maine where we have a little bit of extra space and it's a little bit, uh, especially after the meeting last night, it's a little, you know, it's a, it's a community of, um, you know, there's, there's our fair share of conservation minded anglers up there that, that care for abundance, but I've been a, you know, career guide and, uh, you know, and definitely very concerned of where stripers are. And, uh, so glad we're glad we're all uniting around this fight right now. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you, Kyle. And I, you know, before we kind of get into the, you know, the management questions and, and what we've seen at the first couple of hearings, just kind of curious to hear what you've seen in the fishery up there in Maine over the last couple of years, you know, and uh, have you, have you seen any changes? Obviously, you know, we've, we've seen a stock that's, that, that's in decline on a coastwide basis, but just curious to hear what your, what your perspective has been up there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, so I, I mean, you know, these, these past couple of years, it's, it, it's, it's obviously, you know, we're, we're noticing a, a big, a big decline in the diversity of the age classes of fish. You know, we've got a lot of small schoolies around, um, you know, there aren't, honestly, there aren't many days that, that we go out that we can't find a small schoolie or two to play with. Um, so we're lucky to have those fish to keep people entertained. Um, you know, then we have a lot of fish in the kind of that, you know, that low 20 inch range. Um, but as you get it kind of into the dog days of summer and the fishing gets tough, those, you know, those fish are, those fish are tough to find. Um, and finding a fish over 28 inches has been very, very tough these past few years, you know, and I'll get, I'll get the, you know, people that have been fishing with me for, for a while want to go out and they just want to look for that one big fish. You know, we've got, we've got a few spots that we can, that we can go that, you know, we have some, some bigger fish around, um, but they're tough. People know about some of these spots They're they're heavily pressured and, it's just very few and far between these places that you can find, um, you know, find fish over 28 inches, you know, so that's, that's a special fish for, um, you know, for folks up here in Maine, you know, we're, we're at the, the Northern terminus of the migration and these fish have to run the gauntlet up to us. So these big fish that get up to us are, are, they are warriors to have made it this far. Um, and then they've got to make it back South and try and do it again. So we can have another shot at them the next season. And, you know, I moved to this fishery in about about a dozen years ago, and I I moved onto a little place that, you know, I was able to um, very easily get out on some mud flats. And it was, you know, 10, 12 years ago, the the experience on our mud flats was 
you know, it wasn't an unusual day to catch 10 or 12 fish over 28 inches on the, on the mud. Um, and now it is, you know, we're happy finding 20, 22 inch fish that are willing to eat a crab. And so it's just, it's greatly, it's greatly changed. Um, there's less numbers, there's less diversity in, in size and those big fish are just, you know, not very accessible. Gotcha. Gotcha. Kyle, thanks for that. Thanks for that kind of rundown of what you've been seeing. And certainly based on the, the comments that, that we heard last night at the main hearing, it sounds like, you know, that, that's not a, that's not a unique perspective. You know, a lot of folks are seeing less fish, they're seeing smaller fish. And I, uh, you know, I'm wondering about, you know, how you thought the, uh, the hearing last night in Maine went, I, I, I don't think you've been to too many of, of those kinds of hearings, you know, in, in the striped bass management world and just kind of wondering, you know, what were your takeaways? Like, you know, there seemed to be a pretty unified, uh, thought from, from the recreational community and the folks who were speaking up and just kind of wondering, you know, how did you, how did you think it went? Yeah, definitely. You know, I've really tried to immerse myself these past few years and, um, in this process. So this is, you know, this is kind of my second time to be able to sit on, on some public comment hearings and, and it, I thought it went really well. I mean, everybody that was speaking up was speaking up for, um, wanting access and wanting to see abundance in the striped bass population. Um, you know, and that those comments were echoed throughout, uh, throughout the meeting, you know, the, the questions that were coming up were, were pertinent to, um, you know, wanting to see good science and good data driving the management decisions that are happening in this fishery. And, you know, kind of comment after comment was really even echoing a lot of the, the points that ASGA feels very strongly about. So, you know, sitting in there as a, as a main board member, and I know Willie and Tony were on that meeting too, and just, you know, hearing a lot of these points just continue to come up was, you know, I'm sure you guys were feeling proud and I was glad to hear that, you know, the messages are getting out and it's such a complicated process. You know, I've, I've been talking to a lot of folks in my network and people are just like, I mean, how do you comment on a 30 page PID, you know? And I think ASGA has done a, a nice job of boiling it down into some points that we can kind of digest, but, um, even still, it takes, it takes a special person to engage. And so it's been really great to see a lot of people speaking up and, there was just a lot of very positive, positive comments. I, I definitely agree, Kyle. It was, you know, pretty uplifting to hear kind of that, that tidal wave of, you know, of support for, for what we view as, as some of the major, major priorities uh, and really, you know, threats as well in, in this amendment. So hopefully we'll continue to see, you know, a lot of that messaging moving down the coast, you know, although as John mentioned, it won't always be as, as one-sided probably uh, as, as we move south, but certainly, certainly encouraging to hear what we did. Uh, so lastly, Kyle, I just want to hear your perspective. I mean, you know, we're here, we're the guidepost, you know, we, we have guides listening to the podcast as well. Obviously you've become really engaged in, in conservation and management, you know, through your role at ASGA and, and elsewhere, and just kind of wondering what are your thoughts on the role of, you know, the, for higher fishing community of guides in terms of getting involved in fisheries conservation, you know, whether that be being engaged in the management discussions or even just speaking to your clients when you're out in the water. And just kind of curious to hear what your, you know, what your experience with that has been. You know, and, and I think for, for me, I think that's a really good question, Willie. For me, it's become, you know, I don't want it to sound like being on a high horse by any means, but it feels like a duty, um, you know, and, and I think people can define that duty however they want to. 
you know, we're out there, we're looking for access to fish. We're looking to make our living in a very, very special way. Um, you know, that I feel incredibly privileged to be able to do that. And with a privilege comes protecting that. And so, you know, especially at the juncture that we're at right now is if, you know, if I feel that if I'm not, if I'm not stepping up, if I'm not at least, you know, putting, putting a little bit of time into educating myself and understanding some of these processes and how to effectively engage, you know, I'm, I'm not doing, you know, I'm not honoring my business the right way. I'm not protecting what I want to continue to do for, you know, for the rest of my life, for my work. And so I think, I think all of us, and I think in reality, you know, everybody's going to have kind of a different level of propensity to get engaged in this process. And it's tricky and it's challenging. And I think there's, you know, there are really low level entry points that a guide can get engaged and have a, a big impact in this process. Just sending in your comments and maybe talking about it on the boat, you know, and I think I talk about it every single time I'm on the boat and give my little, little pitch on kind of what's going on in the fishery, because it just adds context to the day we're about to have, you know, we're going to find this size fish in this spot, we're going to maybe be able to find some big bass over sand, you know, in the afternoon when we get some sun, and hopefully they're there, they're probably not going to eat, um, you know, so it's just, for me, it gives a lot of context to the day that we're about to have. I'd love to go out and be that guy that could put people on 40 inch bass every single day, but it just is not, not possible in my fishery. So, you know, for me, it, it, it gives a lot of, uh, yeah, it gives a lot of flavor for the day that we're about to have. And then it also, you know, also talking to clients on the boat, you know, you start to get people that are, that are kind of rising up and that you can see these recreational anglers that they want to get involved. And when I was on the New Hampshire meeting, I was, you know, I, I helped a guy named Robert Young catch his first striper last, last August. And he was on the New Hampshire meeting and he made some really, really cool comments. And I've been chatting a bunch with Robert and he's been getting really engaged and, you know, and his, uh, his perspective is very fresh. And, um, and so that's kind of another benefit of, of course, people are, people are learning, but you might help to, you know, to, to build another advocate. So I think, you know, there's low levels to get involved and then, you know, heck, the more, the more education you give yourself and that you seek out, um, you know, the more effective we all can be. So that's great, Kyle. And yeah, I definitely must be pretty, you know, pretty inspiring to see folks who went fishing for the first time with you, you know, on, uh, you know, on the hearing the next year talking about their, their views on the fishery. I mean, that's awesome. And that's certainly something we hope to continue to see. And, you know, from folks all up and down the coast, right. I mean, we know that these fish have tails, you know, the fish that you're catching in Maine are dependent on good fishery management practices along the coast. You know, you've got fish coming from, from Hudson river, from Chesapeake Bay, and it's just so important to really have a, a unified effort up and down the coast. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, other, other guides are listening. We know a lot of folks are already practicing a lot of what you're talking about, but certainly, you know, that's a great point of contact. A lot of, you know, a lot of clients, they, they look to guides as a, as a, as an authority, right. Not only on, on how to catch fish, but on what's going on with the resource and, and how to get involved. So that's awesome. Uh, really appreciate the perspective today, Kyle. And, you know, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no doubt, Willie. Thanks so much for having me, man. Right on. Well, I just want to pass it back over to you, Tony, just to, to keep folks updated on, you know, the public hearing schedule for the PID for Amendment 7 and, you know, how folks can provide their comments. Um, you know, folks, uh, we have tons of hearings coming up. And I want to remind everyone that you can go to our website, saltwaterguidesassociation.org. 
you can see our full comments, the background on the PID. We even made a snazzy little two-pager. Uh, but it's really important that you attend these meetings. And the schedule coming up, um, we have Virginia uh, next. And you can, you can register for these meetings on asmfc.org via the calendar. Uh, Monday, the 15th, we have Potomac Rivers Fisheries Commission. Tuesday is Delaware. Wednesday is Rhode Island. Thursday, Mass. And then the next Monday, the 22nd, it's Maryland. Uh, then Tuesday is New York. Wednesday is Connecticut. And Thursday is New Jersey. Uh, it's no shock to me that New Jersey is the caboose in the train. Um, ha ha. So, uh, so yeah, folks, this is where the rubber meets the road. Every comment uh, that you can that you can get on these public hearings is massively important. Um, this is how we shape the amendment. Uh, and and you know, you're obviously listening to this because you love striped bass. Um, we have to dominate these meetings. We have to get our message across. We have to tell these folks that abundant fish populations are what we want the most. Um, email your commissioners, attend these hearings, check out everything on our website. Um, and, and hopefully that'll help you and empower you to, to, to make a difference for, for our beloved striped bass. Great. Thanks, Tony. And uh, yeah, we certainly hope to uh, see a good turnout at these meetings. I don't think they'll all go quite as smoothly as New Hampshire's and Maine's did, but certainly hope to have folks attending all of those. And uh, if not, also submitting public comments, which are due again on April 9th. So thanks everybody again for joining today. And before we wrap up, just want to give a couple quick uh, notes on how folks can help out the ASGA. Uh, first off, you can go to our website, saltwaterguidesassociation.org, where you can sign up as a member. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Instagram, where we are at Saltwater Guides Association. Uh, that'll help you, help you stay updated on everything that's going on in the, the fisheries management and conservation community. Uh, if you're a member of a club or a fishing association, uh, while Tony and I would love to say that we have lives out of ASGA, uh, we would be lying. Uh, this is what we do, and we love to talk about our work and, uh, and how to get folks engaged in fishery management. So uh, if you do have a club or association and you'd like to have us come give a talk or a seminar, uh, we're always available to do that. And so with that, uh, look forward to seeing everybody on the next podcast, and thanks so much for joining. 